Hello and welcome to Enabling Digital with Systems Plus. Uh, I'm your host, Amai, and today I'm pleased to welcome Walt Carter, uh, who is the CIO and Chief Digital Officer of Homestar Financial Corporation. Uh, welcome, Walt. Oh, thank you, Amai. It's great to be with you today. So, Walt, to start, I would love if you could share a little more about your background. I've heard it's extremely interesting from some of your, your other podcasts. Um, and then also your current role uh, in the field of uh, digital transformation. Sure. Uh, so uh, long, long time ago, uh, you know, in a galaxy right here, uh, I, uh, I I started out, uh, you know, building software applications uh, literally 40 years ago. Uh, built built a uh, computer simulation of a nuclear particle particle accelerator on a Vax uh, in 1983. Uh, so literally 40 years ago. And, um, and, and, you know, I've had, uh, you know, a, a number of really cool jobs along the way, uh, which you, you probably referenced. Um, you know, I spent my first few years after getting my physics degree, uh, working on nuclear missiles up in Minot, North Dakota. Uh, and then I got to fly on uh, looking glass an airplane that uh, does airborne command and control for uh, US government uh, for a number, number of years, three years. And then uh, I went up to NORAD headquarters in Canada uh, to help uh, the Canadians understand how to use U.S. Air Force fighter packages uh, under that NORAD treaty. And um, in 1992, I got out of the U.S. Air Force as a captain and uh, came back home to you know, North Carolina. Um, and then since then, I've had a number of uh, technology jobs uh, with some pretty big companies uh, like Fidelity and, uh, you know, uh, Delta Airlines, uh, uh, and, uh, you know, was a consultant for a number of years, got to see a lot of uh, what I call the giant hairball problems uh, in uh, Fortune 100 companies. And, uh, and then over the last, uh, I guess, uh, almost 20 years here in Atlanta, I've been in a number of different uh, roles as a, either a chief operating officer, or chief marketing officer, chief information officer. And now today, uh, you know, for the last six years at Homestar, I've been the chief digital officer and CIO. Awesome. And, and so, uh, first of all, you mentioned the VAX, which I've only studied about, and, and uh, it's a complex machine from the sounds of it. So it's pretty cool that you got to use that uh, at the time. And uh, the other thing which I, I thought was interesting, which I just want to, if you could quickly talk through, is you said chief marketing officer and chief information officer, and you were sort of both at one time at some companies. Uh, if you could just kind of walk me through, how did that work, right? How did you align business and technology? I know I'm going a little off topic here, but I just found that an interesting uh, anecdote to touch on. No, it's it's a very fair question. I, I've had I, I've actually given speeches at uh, at conventions where there were both marketers and uh, information people, uh, technology people in the room because they they're all asking me that same question. Well, how do you reconcile those those roles? Are usually you know at odds with each other. And, uh, you know, and, and the answer is that you, you wind up understanding fairly quickly when you occupy both seats that one, you know, in, in IT, we, we are always fighting against uh, unmanaged change, right? That's really the, the, the game is, is to keep all of that unmanaged change away from our systems and, and our infrastructure, because we want to be able to, to restore back to a, a point that's known good. Uh, and, and so you, you kind of have to keep that unmanaged change out. 
Marketing, on the other hand, seems to be, you know, hey, we need to get to the market as quick as we can uh, by hook or by crook or by dog sled. And what we really need is feedback. What we need right now is to know whether these campaigns are working, whether we're getting any traction with our offerings. Right. And so we need feedback. And, uh, you know, and, and truthfully, though, what you find out is that if you could get both of those teams working together and, and develop the kind of nimbleness or agility that you need to get the marketers the feedback that they need as quickly as possible in a, in a repeatable, traceable and consistent way, they win. And if you if you are willing to manage that change as the IT guy and just go as fast as you can, but as safely as possible, I call it full turtle power, right? Go full turtle power, uh, right? And let's go as fast as this turtle can go and let's be ready to drop our shell at any moment, right? Um, you know, and, and again, you can balance that because ultimately they, they need in marketing, they need to know that it's, it's verifiable data, right? This is not just a whim. This is not just that we think it might be working this way. You know, so, so the best data analysis actually happens on the marketing side a lot of times because you want to know very quickly whether this is real or not. And, um, and again, you know, without, without the traceability uh, and, and the ability to link things properly, right, which is an administrative task. It's not, it's not sexy in marketing you know, it's not glam. It's just administratively. How do I know which campaign is driving the needle uh, and which one's not? And that's tagging and bagging and, and stuffing, you know, the kind of traditional stuff that we do all the time in, in administrative tasks for IT. So, like I said, it's not it's not a real conflict. It's an imaginary conflict. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and then again, you, you do recognize that I have a need for speed on the marketing side and I have a need for control on the IT side. And as long as you you satisfy both of those demand elements, you win. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I, I love uh, that you can speak to both the business side and the IT side and kind of use uh, a more holistic view to drive decision making and, and move faster. So, um, you know, well, given, given your experience, both as a, a chief marketing officer and a chief digital officer, what are you seeing as some of the sort of emerging technologies that are driving innovation in the mortgage industry today at large? I know you've been in the mortgage industry for over 10 years now. Yeah, the, you know, obviously the, the one that everybody's talking about right now is generative AI and uh, of excitement about that tool set. Uh, not a whole lot of, uh, you know, focused thought right now, I, I would say. Uh, from the vast majority of people out there, just a lot of excitement because, you know, it emerged suddenly uh, and people are going, hey, what are we doing? What are we doing? Why aren't we doing something? Uh, right. You know, and AI has been out there for a long, long time, as, as you guys know, uh, you know, in your company. And, and you know, and, and AI requires, uh, you know, certain, you know, high quality data. Uh, in, in large data sets in order for you to really take advantage of, of the capabilities of training neural nets and, and, and doing, you know, more than just machine learning, uh, you know, and so, so, you know, there's some real fundamental challenges that I think generative AI is exposing right now. Uh, probably the, the most noteworthy one, uh, in my opinion, is the, the lack of infrastructure, the lack of a learning lab for us to be able to essentially put up the safety rails and the the guardrails that we need in order to learn what can we actually do and what problems can we better solve with this tool set than without, 
you know, uh, you know, and, and a, a corollary, by the way, just as a way of thinking about this, I may, uh, you know, a few years ago, everybody was all buzz about blockchain. Uh, yeah. But what we found was blockchain is really expensive way to largely do what we can already do with a SQL database. I don't really need blockchain to be able to do the kind of things that, that they offer with blockchain tools. I can do that with, with SQL at a much lower price point. You know, and so what we're seeing, again, is a lot of people are trying to rush to do something with AI without thinking through that cost of value relationship. And, uh, you know, and, and you know, just like the dot com boom before all of that, you know, you're going to see a lot of people doing stuff just because, you know, it's better to be doing something than not. But then they're going to have to pay the piper, you know, at some point for, for not thinking their way through that. Um, the enterprises are all looking at this going, look, there's a lot of privacy and security risk. Uh, there's a lot of data exposure potentiality here that we've got to be mindful of. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, potential uh, things that are going to trip up our risk committees and, and our legal teams. Uh, so we really need to be very thoughtful. And I, I would use that same phrase, uh, you know, full turtle power. Let's go as fast as we can go, but let's go slow enough to be able to stop when we need to and, and kind of cover ourselves, if you know. Um, I, you know, there's, there's a handful of other things that are going on out there. I think, you know, we saw a, a huge, uh, you know, kind of move to the metaverse and Web3 uh, that, that also felt like it petered out, uh, kind of had that blockchain kind of feel to it there for a while. But there's a huge opportunity in the metaverse for training uh, there's, a, 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 I think, a better opportunity in the metaverse also for collaboration and doing real, uh, you know, joint venturing that, that kind of crosses geographic locations, right? You know, we, we've kind of pushed everybody to work remotely. We, we found that a lot of people are more productive working remote, but now we need to pull them back together in a way that makes sense. And we don't want the travel costs and the lodging costs. So the metaverse op op offers a tremendous opportunity for us to do those kinds of collaborative things in that environment. And uh, so I think I think we're going to see training and the collaboration, uh, you know, happening in the metaverse more and more over time. Uh, you know, and again, you know, a lot of opportunity for us to learn there. Uh, a lot of a lot of really cool stuff, though. Yeah, and I think uh, from my conversations with, with other CIOs, where especially with generative AI, it's okay, everybody needs to do it, but then when you try to really dig down into it, what is the use case? What are you trying to solve for? Um, and how can AI be applied is where you normally don't get a, a very good answer. And, and I'm still waiting for some, you know, in some industries. Uh, but, you know, talking about use cases of metaverse, I, you know, I'd love to hear how you're looking at maybe the metaverse or just automation in general, RPA, some of those sort of uh, technologies in the mortgage industry and in the mortgage process today, what is top of mind uh, for you as a chief digital officer? So I think the mortgage industry in general uh, is, is ripe for, uh, you know, a technology, uh, you know, intervention in a lot of ways. The, you know, we, we are, you know, very much a manual uh, throw bodies at it kind of culture across the board, uh, you know, not unlike healthcare uh, and, you know, a couple of other, uh, you know, notable, uh, you know, industries out there. Um, you know, it, it's, it's always easier to manage uh, automation into a manufacturing type of environment. And when you start moving into services, it gets a little bit more nebulous. 
uh, right? And, uh, and, and, and yet, you know, we've got plenty of opportunity here. We, we turned on RPA, uh, you know, in several threads uh, over the last few years that I've been at, uh, at Homestar, found out that worked really well for us. Now that, now that you've got the ability to layer on some uh, uh, workflow engines on top of that RPA, uh, and then generative AI for curation and distribution of real effective knowledge management. Now you've got, you know, a, a really potent tool set that I think is going to really change the way we do the, the mortgage process. And I think it's going to change it at the front end as well as the back end. Uh, and so, you know, there's, there's a lot of consequences to being able to pull these tool sets out. I also think that, you know, that you're going to see just like in healthcare, a resistance to use the new technology. Uh, you're going to see that, you know, as a slow roll, not a fast roll. You see some disruptors jump in and, and go kind of clean sheet. Let me just re-engineer this whole process using these kind of tools. And they're going to have good results uh, because it's not that complicated when you get right down to it. it regulatory environment is tough, but, but it's pretty well defined in a lot of ways. So, you know, I think, I think there's tremendous opportunities to disrupt this industry with technology. And uh, I think we're going to see that now sooner rather than later because of the emergence, particularly of the generative AI. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think uh, it's amazing the amount uh, of potential technology has uh, to disrupt certain industries, but what we've often found as a big sort of roadblock um, is okay. Choosing the technology is just the tip of the iceberg. Actually, implementing it and driving change through your organization and getting people to use it, like you said, there was resistance in the healthcare industry to use a lot of technology. Uh, what are you, some of your strategies to to overcome that uh, and drive that change management uh, across your organization? So the the best strategy that that I've uh, I've encountered over the years, and, and again, I've been doing this for 40 years, I'm a, and, uh, and I actually wrote a book a couple of years ago on change leadership. I think organizational change management is one of those underfunded uh, and, you know, frankly, uh, underappreciated uh, elements of change, right? You know, and, and to drive adoption, the, the absolute number one best strategy is get your stakeholders involved in problem definition. As early as you can, get everybody thinking about the problem. What problem are we solving, right? And, and what problem set in a digital transformation? You're looking at a set of problems, not just one. Uh, and you're looking at a lot of things that you can't possibly know up front. Sorry, my CFO friends, but uh, you're not going to be able to detail out to the penny what the budget's going to be because you're going to encounter a bunch of unknowns as you try to go from an analog world to a digital world. And, uh, you know, and, and as you encounter these new technologies that we've been talking about today already, I may, you're going to encounter, you know, a lack of experience and knowledge on your teams, uh, a lack of awareness of what tools apply to what part of the problem set. Uh, and, and so you've got a lot to learn as you move through all of this. And, uh, and, and the change leaders that, that recognize this are going to be the ones that drive through and achieve the value drops that are significant. The guys that are not doing organizational change management, the guys that are not involving key stakeholders in the problem definition up front, right? Because that's where you get everybody engaged. You get the people in, engaged in, let's make sure we're solving the right problem. Then we'll apply the right tools and the right workers to those problem sets. 
um, you know, the, 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 the general mess out there of digital transformation right now and, and overall, you know, frankly, uh, programs and projects uh, over the years have, have been dismal. Uh, you know, we just, we don't lead well. Uh, that's the, the truth of it, right? The, the, the number one problem is uh, executive leadership, executive sponsorship is not good. Uh, and, uh, you know, and again, you don't have enough people that really own the problem set to also then own the solution set. Yeah, and I think one of the things that you do mention um, in, in some of your articles is this concept of a, of a tune-up, right? On the, on the executive side and the, and the importance of that. So, you know, I'd love if you can, you know, talk a little bit about the concept of a tune-up. Yeah, and it's, it's really, you know, kind of related to my experience, you know, in a band, uh, you know, in middle school and high school, right? You know, I show up at the, at the band, uh, you know, and, you know, I get my saxophone out. And the first thing we do is we all play concert B flat together uh, to see who's in tune and who's out of tune, right? And we, we, we all tune to that concert B flat and we start to address the music together in tune at the beginning. Then you play for a little while. And what happens is your, your instrument gets out of tune again, right? So you got to keep tuning as you, you continue to work out together. Well, it turns out that an executive team needs to go through that same kind of process. We can get alignment for a minute, and then we're going to have to keep tuning and make sure that we stay aligned all the way through whatever that joint effort is that we're working on. And, uh, and, and you know, there's some tools that I've talked about on the other uh, podcasts and, and in my books. Uh, about, you know, how you do that. But, uh, you know, the, the most important thing is just to make sure everybody agrees on here's what we're doing, here's why we're doing it, and here's how we're going to know when we're done. Uh, and if you can get people to stay aligned and tuned on just those three elements, you've got a really, really great chance of delivering successfully. Uh, as soon as you see, you know, cracks in that foundation, uh, I don't know why we're doing this. Uh, what are we doing again? Uh, how are we going to know when we're done? I don't know, right? As, as soon as you see cracks in those foundational elements, then you you lose, and that's a that's a real problem for a lot of teams. A lot of teams don't don't do tuning either, right? They they do great launches, but then they don't come back and make sure that everybody's still staying on the same page. And if you think about it, as you move through, especially a transformation, you're going to be adding people to your team kind of throughout that life cycle. It's not static; it's dynamic. And as you add those new people, you got to get them grounded in that same set of foundational elements as the team that started, right? And, and the best way for you to do that as a leadership team turns out not to do it yourself as a leader, but to have the people at the lower levels in the organization explain the problems, explain what they're doing to try to solve those problems, and then answer those three questions. What, why, and how are we going to know we're done? Right. And, and the more you get that bubbling up from the bottom, the more likely you are to keep the whole band in tune all the way through. Amazing. So it, it feels like it's evolving from a band maybe to like an orchestra of sorts. Right. And yeah, with an, with an expanding team and everybody trying to be in sync and play together. Uh, what, yeah, what do you think, feel? Think about, think about your leadership role there. And, and the orchestra is a good analogy. You know, if you want to get if you want to get a lot of musicians on a stage and you want to get them all playing, you know, in tune with each other, but a complex, a complex piece of music, right? You know, a big complex piece of music that involves a full orchestra, then, you know, you've got one guy that stands up in front and just waves a baton, 
right? He waves a baton. He's keeping time for everybody. He's telling you, this is the timing that I want everybody to stay on. You know, and every once in a while, he's, he's waving at a certain group in the orchestra and, you know, pushing some others down, go quiet here, raise more here, right? And so it truly is an orchestration to involve all of those different groups with different skills, different instruments, you know, and, 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 and then pulling it all together in a way that emotionally connects with an audience, right? You know, the highest reward for an orchestra is actually a standing ovation. And the standing ovation is a representation that that orchestra and that maestro delivered in a way that connected the music emotionally to that audience in such a powerful way that they felt like given that, that uproar, you know, and standing applause. Uh, right. You know, it's, it's one thing to deliver a project uh, and have to move to the next one with no celebration. It's another thing altogether to know, hey, we just saved the company. Hey, you know, everybody's standing up and giving us the standing O because without this project coming in on time and, and with this value, then, you know, we were we were not going to do well as a company. Right. I mean, it, what a difference. Right. In the way you think about what you're doing. Yeah, and I mean, you know, when we're talking about the importance of people and, and their value in these digital transformation initiatives, uh, but uh, amidst all of this technology, amidst all these new sort of emerging uh, things such as generative AI, um, how do we sort of get people on board and how do we emphasize that, hey, this is not going to take away your job, but you will have to do things differently, right? Like, how do we, how do we help people understand that? I don't know the answer to that, Amay. I, I really wish I did, uh, you know, because that fear factor of this is going to cost me my job is is one of the biggest elements of resistance to change that I'm seeing out there. Uh, a lot of people don't understand the technologies, don't understand the tools, uh, and they are, you know, really, really afraid. And, uh, and I get that. It makes perfect sense to me. Uh, you know, I'm a pragmatist, and, uh, you know, I believe that a number of these jobs are going to change in you know fundamental ways, uh, you know people that have been, you know looking at a screen, moving data from you know a document or you know an an, an element of data uh, that that is on one page and then moving it into a spreadsheet or some other system, those jobs can be done today by RPA, right? You you don't need you know the the exciting sexy new technology to do that. You can you can largely replace a lot of those stare and compare jobs with, with RPA. Uh, you, you take a workflow engine, put that on top and you start moving, you know, the data in an intelligent way. Um, and yet, you know, in accounting, the number one tool set today is still Excel. It's a, you know, you know, uh, you know and, and, you know, we've had giant systems like Oracle and SAP and PeopleSoft before all of that, uh, you know, and you would think people had moved out of Excel a long time ago, but no, no. And try to kill it. <laughs> try to kill it. Right. It'll cost you your job. Uh, right. You cannot get these guys out of, of Excel because it's a it's a comfort zone for them. Right. Um, you know, so I, I think I think it's a legitimate question, a legitimate concern. Uh, and I think my answer to it is pretty much the same as on the other, which is the more I get the 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 people at the lower levels, the actual job holders, engaged in the process of changing their processes and owning their problems and owning the solutions that go with them, the more likely we are to get adoption uh, and, you know, and an accelerated use and an acceleration toward the value drop, which we're really looking for, right? And, and again, you've got some people that are gonna fight you no matter what, because they're just wired that way. 
Um, and I've got, you know, recommendations for how you negotiate that in, uh, in my first book. Uh, I'm actually working on book number two right now, which is called uh, Driving Behind Idiots. And it's, uh, it's, it's a book about uh, leadership systems and, uh, you know, how, how to implement a leadership system so that your leaders know what they're accountable for and how they're going to be held responsible. And, um, and, and you know, because in a lot of organizations, and just like we, we said a minute ago, right, a lot of these projects and programs fail because of bad leadership. And it's because you don't you don't pretty clearly define what the boundaries are for the leader. Um, and, you know, you got to set expectations fairly for everyone that's involved in these change projects. And, and if you miss that, you've missed the whole thing, to be honest with you. It's, it's really all about the people. It's less and less about the technology. Uh, I mean, I've been doing technology work for 40 years now, uh, like I said, and, and I have rarely ever seen the insurmountable technology problem. Okay. If you give us enough time and enough money, we'll solve your technology problem. But on the other hand, I've seen over and over again, projects get derailed or stalled unnecessarily because of the insurmountable people problems, that alignment and tuning problem, right? And, uh, you know, and so, uh, you know, you've, you've always got conflicting agendas within the silos in a company and the silos are normal. Uh, that's just the way humans behave. I mean, go look at any high school or middle school and you'll see all the little clicks, uh, mm -hmm. right? You, you know, it's just a normal part of, of, you know, the tribal behavior, if you will, uh, right? So I, I really think that our project leaders, project managers, executive sponsors all need psychology training. Uh, they need to understand, you know, how, how humans work, uh, you know, and if they understood that better, then they would understand how to lead those humans from, from one process to a new, better process. So, so out of curiosity, you know, because we're now mostly in hybrid remote type situations, right? How has that affected some of these alignment issues that you're talking about, these people problems? Uh, and what are your, your thoughts on that in the longer term? Well, you know, we, we did see with the, the rush to remote, uh, the, the, the rise of this hybrid. And, you know, I think we're going to be stuck with that for a long time. Uh, you know, I, a lot of people are just going, look, I was much more productive outside the office than, you know, coming in. I, I don't I don't relish the idea of jumping back into traffic for two or three hours a day. Uh, right. You know, that doesn't help our productivity, does it? Um, and so uh, what we also saw, though, was the lack of ability to build our culture and, you know, to to get new people into a culture to, and help them find their way sooner rather than later. Uh, operating in the islands by themselves was not conducive to collaboration and teamwork. And so, you know, so there's a, there's a mix of problems there on both sides that we've got to solve for. And that's what hybrid is, is trying to resolve. Mm -hmm. The hybrid world is, is, is going to resolve which workers are most productive where and, and how do we best take advantage of that in, in order for our business to thrive in, in this new world that we're kind of moving into. Um, you know, and again, a lot of these tools help with that. I think particularly the multiverse, met metaverse world, yeah. uh, right? Those give you that opportunity for, for proximity and engagement in, a, in an innovative way that doesn't require you to leave LA and, and you know, come to Georgia, for instance, right? You know, you can, you can meet in a room in the metaverse uh, and, and do everything you need to do. I, there's actually a mortgage company I just saw in, in California that does everything in the metaverse. So they, oh. they invite their uh, clients to come into a, a virtual room 
uh, you know, sit down at a virtual tabletop and meet their loan, loan officer all with an avatar. Uh, right. And it's kind of cool. I mean, it's a little hokey too, but it, but it's yeah. cool and it, it'll evolve. Um, because again, you got customers, I'm, we operate in 46 States, uh, and by the end of the year, we'll be in, you know, all, uh, all 50 States. But, uh, bot- bottom line is you, you look at that and you go, I think there's some tremendous opportunity to use these emerging technology tools to help facilitate more human connection. And if we think about it that way, then we win, I think. Yeah, so more like embrace the technology and see how you can use it versus resist it and try not to, and try to stay away from it as long as you can. Um, I love it. Uh, the, you know, just speaking of these emerging technologies, metaverse, uh, you know, generative AI, you, you spoke about data privacy. What are some of those sort of ethical considerations and privacy considerations that you should think about, even though you're trying to move super fast with some of these new technologies? Well, <laughs> yeah, I, I think these are some of the tougher problems uh, for us. Uh, you know, I, I also uh, kind of think a little differently about some of this than some of my peers. Um, I, had a, I had a great conversation a few years ago with the guy that uh, founded Chick-fil-A here in town. Oh. Uh, he's passed away since then, but uh, he had just come back from uh, Congress where he briefed both the House and the Senate in a, in a joint session on the topic of business ethics. And uh, Truett Cathy told, told a bunch of us here uh, at the Atlanta History Center one night, you know, you know what I told them, Walt? I told them there ain't no such things as, as business ethics. You, you hire people in your business and that person that you hired either has ethics or they don't, right? And either way, your business doesn't have ethics, but an individual either has it and uses it or doesn't. And, and you have the consequences either way. So make sure you hire people with ethics, right? Uh, and and that's, that's kind of the takeaway. The technologies don't have ethics, right? They get, the ethics get programmed in uh, essentially by us people, right? You know, so either the, the coders have ethics and they build that, yeah. that ethical bias in, or they don't have ethics and they take that ethical bias out, right? And so when you, when you start thinking about these technologies, and where they're they're being uh, you know built and, and originated, uh, it should give you some pause uh, about you know that ethical consideration. But I don't think we're going to be able to reverse engineer our way out of some of these bad decisions. Uh, it, we're just going to have to have consequences, and that's that's a real challenge for us. Um, yeah, and um, I so. I, I love the fact that you think about it from a, an individual level uh, and businesses, you know, fundamentally don't have ethics. Uh, that, it, of course, it stresses the importance of hiring the right people, which is very challenging. Uh, but what are some of the other, you know, finally to wrap up, what are some of the other opportunities and challenges uh, that you see in, in this ongoing journey of uh, digital transformation? Well, probably the biggest the biggest one is, you know, the, the emerging uh, regulatory world of privacy. Right. And, uh, you know, and what does that mean? I mean, when we look at in my business, we look at the California Consumer Privacy Act, you know, more broadly internationally, you're looking at GDPR yeah. uh, and you're looking at some of the, the learnings that have already happened there. Uh, you know, you've seen a lot of the states here in the United States, you know, following California uh, very closely. You know, so we're going to see a whole lot more focus on privacy and, and personal security of data, right? And, uh, and yet, 
every time those regulatory guys, you know, load up on us, what they're really doing is adding costs to our business, but there's no offsetting revenue opportunity, right? They're just adding costs. So it's decrementing our margins. And, uh, and, and that means we've got to be more creative about finding new revenue streams to offset that cost thing. Um, and that's where, you know, again, my thinking on this may be contrary to a lot of others, but I think that's one of the biggest problems in healthcare pricing, for instance, right? You know, we, we layered in all of these regulations, uh, all of these, you know, detailed, you know, cost elements that you can charge for. And here's how the limits work set by the government and the insurance agencies. And, and now the doctors and the, and the practitioners are out there having to get real creative about how they bill us because there's not enough money in the, the stuff that they're serving us, right? And it's creating opportunities for these ethical concerns, right? The corruption. Mm-hmm. Why does an aspirin cost me $200? <laughs> well, the answer is because I can charge you for $200 for an aspirin, but I can't charge you the full amount that it cost me for you occupying the bed. I'm capped there, right? So I'm going to charge you everything I can for the bed, but I'm going to make up the difference by charging you higher for the aspirin. And, and you've got to think in ecosystems, Amay. I mean, let, let's look at a different problem, right? Right now, you've got a huge concern about commercial real estate uh, in downtown Atlanta, where I live. And I saw a big article on that right before I logged in with you. Um, you know, and a lot, of, a lot of the businesses that were built to serve the office workers without the office workers there are going out of business. So the ecosystem is suffering, right? And the owners of those buildings are going, but if the office workers are not in the buildings, then what is the value of the real estate? You know, so you've got this ecosystem problem. It's not just a, do we put our people back to work in the office or not? It's a question of, well, what about those restaurants? Do we need to protect those restaurants and the dry cleaners and the, and the, childcare facilities that were all built to help our employees navigate those parts of their lives while they were at work. Right. And so when you start thinking about these problems, you know, from a, from a root cause level, you start seeing it's not just one problem. There's a whole lot of elements in an ecosystem that, that you've got to address. And uh, so I don't think these are lightweight little problems either, right? Healthcare is not a lightweight problem. And certainly, you know, returning to the office or not returning to the office, those are going to be complicated for us. Yeah, yeah. I think there's no, no shortage of uh, things to think about and definitely thinking about an ecosystem. It's the right way to do it, but definitely not easy. Um, uh, and so, you know, finally, well, the, I think that's all we had for today. The, the only thing I would leave uh, with is if, how can our listeners get in touch with you or follow you, whether it's on LinkedIn, Twitter, social media, uh, what's the way for them to get, best way for them to get in touch with you? Great. Uh, so, you know, easiest way is on Twitter or X uh, at Walt74. Uh, I'm at Walt74 on, uh, on X. Uh, on LinkedIn, I'm Walter G. Carter. Uh, so, uh, you know, find me on LinkedIn there and, and definitely connect with me if you, uh, if you're listening to the podcast today, uh, and, and want to have a relationship, uh, you know, I love that stuff. Um, you know, and then, you know, if you want to access my book, go out to, we can't stay here.net, uh, or go straight to the Amazon store and, uh, you'll find three different versions of the book there at, at Amazon. Uh, it's selling well. And every time we get on a podcast, it sells a little better. So I appreciate that. 
and uh, you know, and and again, my goal in that book, I may just for the, the sake of the audience, is I spend a lot of time learning the hard way how to do change and implementations of of technology. And I thought I should write all this down so that other people don't have to sweat so hard and uh, maybe pick up as many scars as I have over the 40 years. Awesome. And uh, I, I really hope uh, you get a new audience with some of our Indian listeners, because that's where we're based out of. And um, thank you for joining the podcast, uh, Walt. Thank you, Amay. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And uh, for all my brothers and sisters in India, you know, I spent a lot of time over there and uh, I, I love that place. So, uh, you know, let's, uh, let's, let's do technology right. Let's just do it the right way. And, the, and by the way, I think you hit on it early, right? It's all about the people. So if you treat the people right, the technology will flow. Uh, if you don't treat the people right, they'll resist you all day. Awesome. Thanks, Walt. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye.